You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It is that time on a Monday when we speak to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. I hope all your questions are ready. Doctor, Happy New Year to you. Well, Happy New Year to you as well. Did you have a good, good festive period? Um, remember I told you that thing I was doing about the moving house and everything? That's what was happening. <laughs> oh. oh, so you sort of did get a good Christmas it present. Was, it was an it unpacking. Was a one. It was a painful one, but it was unpacking, but it, it was still beautiful nonetheless. And I hope you had a wonderful one too. Now, before we take any of the listeners' questions, of which uh, we're taking all of your calls on 011-883-0702, your SMS is 31702, your tweets at M at Radio 702, using the hashtag 702 Afternoons, and the WhatsApp line 0727021702, all of your weird and wonderful questions to come through for the doctor. I have a question for you. Now, I saw something super interesting. I came across it on an account called Interesting Engineering on Instagram, and it reads as follows. Man's semen shows donor's DNA after bone marrow transplant. This rare scenario leads to big questions in the world of forensics. Now, I was actually going to ask you this question previously, that if a person receives an organ or or anything else, blood, anything from another person, how does that affect their DNA, if at all? When we do an organ transplant, let's take lungs for an example, because there's a condition called cystic fibrosis, which is an inherited condition. And if a person has two copies of the cystic fibrosis gene, one from each parent, because you need just one working copy not to have the condition, then if you've got two copies then you get the condition. So every cell in your lung, and actually the intestines are affected too, has this gene that's not working quite the way it should, with the result that you tend to have very sticky mucus in the lungs, and this leads to cycles of repeated infections and progressive damage and ultimately fibrosis and and lung failure. So we do lung transplants in those contexts so that you give people a healthy set of lungs from someone who doesn't have cystic fibrosis, and critically the cells that go in are the cells of the donor, the tissue is theirs, and that has working copies of the gene, and therefore the person has lungs that are not prone to cystic fibrosis after that transplant. But the cells in the lungs are lung cells, and we take steps to make sure that there aren't rogue blood cells in there that could cause problems, so they won't go anywhere else in the body, and that person will just have someone else's lungs. Same for liver, same for kidneys, same for a heart transplant. But If you give someone a bone marrow transplant, which is where you take away their own bone marrow stem cells, these normally live in the marrow cavity of the mainly the long bones in the body, and they're they're responsible for producing all of your blood cells. These include the red blood cells that carry oxygen around your blood, but critically also the white blood cells that fight off infection and blood cells called platelets, which are bits of cells derived from big cells called megakaryocytes. They help your blood to clot. So if you replace someone's bone marrow with a donor's bone marrow, albeit one that is genetically compatible with them, it's still going to be genetically different. And therefore, it will have different markers on it. And those cells will go all over the body because that's what the immune system does. They can access all areas. And therefore, if you take blood from someone who has had a bone marrow transplant, you will detect chiefly, we never guarantee that you got rid of all of, we try to get rid of all of the person's own blood, but you will detect 
the DNA of their bone marrow stem cell donor. Now, because the bone marrow cells turn into blood cells that can go everywhere in the body, unsurprisingly, you will get white blood cells cropping up in other body fluids. And if you test those body fluids, you will therefore find the donor's DNA in those samples. And you've just given one example of how that can happen. So, yes, there is the potential for forensics to be frustrated under those circumstances and possibly misled. But the number of people who are in that position is very, very few and it would be relatively easy to sort it out because you'd find that both DNA fingerprints, the person plus their donor, would be present in the sample and you could therefore argue what had happened on that basis. Mm, mm. All right, we have Sfiso in Joburg South. Hi, Sfiso. Hi, Luhila and the mega scientist. Um, this, you know, I've been curious about this for a while now. Um, when I used to grow up, we used to uh, rely on, say, SABC1, to give us uh, um, the weather forecast, and ordinarily it would it would always be accurate. But what I've realized of late, with the apps and, and everything else, I've realized that um, you know the the prediction hasn't been as accurate as it used to be. So I, I'm just wondering from whether is this is this only in my head? Has it you know has it always been like that, or is it a question of global warming, uh, for instance, um, interfering with how how it, you know, how the the, the, the global, fo- I mean, the weather forecasters are able to do their job. Um, yeah, so it's just something that has always been in my mind. All right, so for you, it's about the accuracy. The accuracy, so it's no longer the same. So, as, as, I mean, I don't know on how many occasions I'd look at my app and it would say that there'd be, say, for instance, rain, and then and then there wouldn't be rain, and then all of a sudden when you go back to the app, the app now tells you that there is rain all of a sudden, yet initially when you checked, there was, you know, there was no such forecast. Um, so I'm just wondering, if is it, has it become more difficult to predict rain or any other uh, weather, um, or is it just existing in my mind, or, you know, you know what I mean? Mm. The way in which the weather is predicted is largely mathematical, and it's done by clever people and very, very big computers. They make measurements which look at the various weather patterns, different measures and parameters that are recorded, like pressure, temperature, wind direction, and so on, as well as time of year. And they have very, very powerful computer models of putting all these different measures together, how this translates into the weather that we see subsequently. And so they can run these models forward and backwards. And so you can race forward a week hence, and you can ask what's the weather going to be like next week. You can also do it for the next hour, for the next day. And as you go further forward in time, the uncertainty gets bigger. So the weather forecast that you're going to get for the near term is the most accurate, and the weather forecast you're going to get for farther into the future becomes less and less accurate. It's only also as good as the raw data it's fed. So some parts of the Earth's surface are very well monitored. These tend to be countries with uh, high population, high population density, uh, with um, very, very good metrics across the whole of that country, and they're able to therefore produce a very detailed and accurate prediction for very, very small parts of the country at once. Whereas if you've got areas which are more sparsely populated or they are relying on older technology or the measurements which are coming in to inform these systems are less good, then obviously the uncertainty is going to go up. Now, the 
uncertainty just means how how likely you are to be right. So you can make a prediction, but then there's going to be, say, a plus or minus 10%, 20% chance I might be wrong on either side of it. Now, with the current systems that are in place, they have become incredibly good. And to give you an example, I looked at my, my phone yesterday, which which based on my IP address of my house, it knows geographically where I am. And it said, at two o'clock, it's going to rain. And and honestly, I swear to God, at two o'clock it started to rain, mm. and it's very, very impressive. And you will find that in some places it is as good as that, but in other places you're going to have a lot more uncertainty, and you're going to have a lot less good technology behind some of this stuff. And so it may be that's part of it, but also, as you've quite rightly said, when you're using the internet, some of the providers are routing their internet provision via different geographical areas where their data center is. So when an app that you're running on your phone says, well, where is this person? If it hasn't got access to accurate location data from your phone, it may rely on the IP address or the internet service provider saying where you are, and you might not be where they actually are and where they're declaring their services originating from. So it can give you misleading location information, which in turn says to the app, oh, this person's actually somewhere else. Mm. And so you get the wrong weather forecast. So there's a range of reasons why. But on the whole, weather forecasting has become incredibly good and incredibly powerful. And in some countries, I mean, they're giving, you know, by the square kilometer resolution of whether it will or won't rain and what the temperature is going to be for particular bits of the country, because these models are really very powerful these days. All right, um, we are taking your calls, your SMSs, your tweets, and your WhatsApps as we speak to the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. 702. The Naked Scientist. 11, oh, now we are 10 minutes exactly to 2 o'clock. We take your calls, 011-883-0702. Your SMS is 31702. Your tweets at Relebukhile M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons and the WhatsApp line 0727021702. Chatting to Chris Smith. We have Dela in Johannesburg South. Hi. Good afternoon, Lebo. Mm, how are um, you? I'm well, thanks. And you? I'm good. Go ahead. Okay, I just would like to ask the naked scientist, I am, you know, my dogs are traumatized every year with uh, fireworks that is being displayed. And, you know, I just don't know what to do with them, how to keep them safe. I keep them in the house. I play soft music, you know. I I am not working, so I'm not in a position to buy them any tranquilizers or meditation or anything you know mm. i think that's a very uh, so, good question Della. um oh. yeah um doctor what are your thoughts i actually had a conversation my my older brother's an absolute dog lover and he said what he did for his dogs was to expose them early and they don't get frightened at all um is there something that a person can do to protect their dogs from fireworks i took my dog which is ostensibly a gun dog it's a black labrador shooting the other day and the first gun went off and the dog scarpered. And I rang my wife because we live in the middle of nowhere. And so he knows where he lives and he'd run a mile home. <laughs> and she said, he's, got, he's just come home. Uh, the dog was terrified. And other dogs there, on the other hand, loving it. And they were coming and catching the birds as they came in and that kind of thing. And I said to one of the owners, so why is your dog not terrified? And mine's run home and is now hiding under our kitchen table. And they said, when he was little, we took him to a fireworks display 
And after a few bangs went off, he suddenly thought, well, this is all right, and it's been fine ever since. So you're quite right that it's really, it's fear of the unfamiliar. And mm. dogs don't like the noise because they have sensitive hearing, but they also don't like the unexpectedness of it. And until they've learned to associate the noise and the unexpectedness with nothing bad happening, which is what habituation is all about, then they will react like that. So the best thing to do, actually, it, it sounds cruel, but you're being cruel to be kind, is exposure therapy. In the same way that we're humans, if there's something you are averse to, fear of spiders, snakes, or whatever, gentle, graded exposure over time with reassuring sounds, environment, the fact that everything's okay, nothing bad happens, it slowly weakens the link between the bad and unexpected and the fearful response, and then the dogs get used to it. Easier when they're younger because they tend to adapt and accommodate new information faster, but not impossible for an older animal to learn as, as well. So my next step is going to be gentle, graded exposure therapy for my dog to get him used to it so he, he can come out and not have to run off home frightened when people start shooting. And I think the operative word there is gentle, not like bombarding and traumatizing um, the yep. animals. All right, we have Charmaine and Randberg. Hi, Charmaine. Hi, how are you? Good, Happy thanks to you. Happy New Year to, to you too. I wanted to find out what causes an itch, someone's skin to itch, um, especially when you see something um, or when you sit on something. Um, yeah, what, what, is, what is that thing that causes someone's skin to itch? When you say see something, do you mean something that gives you the heebie-jeebies? Yes, like, yeah, give you the heebie-jeebies and your, your skin starts crawling and you just, all of a sudden wanting to scratch your skin. What, what, is the thing, what is the thing that makes your skin to itch? Things put together, dots. That's like me! It's and... called trypophobia. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> it's so traumatizing. Or, or, <laughs> or, yes. or food. Like, yes. yeah, when a cake, if you bake it and it's got those holes, Yes. Oh my gosh, doctor, I, I, I suffer from this and I can't even Google a solution because the moment I go online, all it does is show me lots of little holes. <laughs> oh, I'm scratching myself as we speak. I'm itchy thinking about it. Well, yeah, there are a range of things that, that actually would do this. And us talking about being itchy, I guarantee we'll have people all over uh, Hao Ting now with their hand down their back or just scratching the tops of their legs or just kind of wriggling their shoulders thinking, oh, you know, I feel a little bit on the itchy side. And part of the reason is it's a bit similar to the way in which yawns are contagious. When you see someone itching, you want to itch as well or scratch to make sure that whatever's manifesting in them isn't doing the same to you. And so there is a protective mechanism and we have an itch sensation and there are dedicated nerve pathways from the skin into the spinal cord and up to the brain in order to signal itch. And we have those to protect us from various parasites and dangerous things that might like to damage our skin or burrow holes in us and infect us. So what's actually happening here is that rather than those processes causing that itch pathway to be engaged, other higher processes fear of other things that we would normally regard as innocuous really can also engage that process so i think in your case when you're saying i don't like looking at things that have holes in them they make me itch and and, and shrug my shoulders and feel really strange it's engaging your itch center and and it's a psychological thing and i think probably 
graded exposure, gentle to holes of various kinds, would be the way to solve this one as well. It's because you you learn to not experience the the, the outcome when you're ex- when you are exposed to the stimulus, and you slowly weaken that link. And, and then it goes away. So maybe that's what you need to do. No, thank you. I'm just like, as you, <laughs> the moment you said things that burrow holes in you, I was like, ah, ah, I, I can't. It's just too much. I might need therapy to deal with this. All right, we have Mboni in Centurion. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. And you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, I've got a question for the naked scientist. Mm. So I want to find out what causes searching on the neck um, for a person who is a type 1 diabetic. Mm, that's a what, good what one. What causes which one? What causes sweating on the neck for a person with right. diabetes? Well, a person with diabetes, for anyone not familiar with the term, is someone who has high levels of sugar in their bloodstream because they're not producing enough insulin. And if someone has type 1 diabetes, they can't produce any insulin, so they have very high levels of blood sugar. This is a life-threatening condition unless the insulin is replaced. In someone who has type 2 diabetes, it's that they have plenty of insulin, often, but it's not enough for their needs. And it's often associated with carrying too much weight and your body becomes insensitive to, to your own insulin. So losing weight and also adding or supplementing insulin or supplementing production of insulin can help to control it. People who have diabetes can, though, uh, see a blood sugar that swings too low, especially if you're injecting insulin. You have to be very careful that you keep your blood sugar correct because insulin is a very powerful signal And if your blood sugar becomes too low, then it's life-threatening. And when you get low blood sugar, in the same way that people who don't have diabetes will say, I get a bit headachey, I feel shaky and quivery, I might feel cold, I might feel um, like I want to shiver, I might sweat and get clammy, the same thing can happen with someone who's diabetic. So if you are experiencing those symptoms, and you have injected insulin, it might be because your blood sugar is temporarily dipping a bit too low and you're activating your nervous system that's uh, regarding this as a threat. And so it's activating sweating mechanisms and, and shaking mechanisms. If that's associated when you do a finger prick test with low blood sugar, that could be the reason. I can't think of any other reason why that would happen um, in specifically someone who has diabetes. So I would check your blood sugar if that's happening to you and just make sure that you're it's not because your blood sugar is dipping a little bit too low when that happens. And if that is the case, what you should do is to just eat something with some sugar in it, a banana or something, just to push your blood sugar up slightly, and that will hopefully make that go away. All right, thank you for that question, Mboni. We have one more on WhatsApp in our final minute. They say, I'd like to know why, if the sun is the same distance from Pretoria to Port Elizabeth, the temperature is so different. That's from Lawi. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> having been to Grahamstown a number of times, and someone said to me before I went there, they went, oh, cold. And sure enough, I got there because I was thinking, oh, what do they know? I got there. God, it was cold. Um, the reason is quite simply one of geography. London is in exactly the same line of latitude as Moscow. In London, it's 15 degrees C. In Moscow, it's about minus 15 degrees C. Wow. Differences geography. So when you're near an ocean, the UK, for example, is very close to a warm ocean current called the Gulf Stream, which, as the name suggests, originates in the, in the Gulf, and it brings warm water north across the Atlantic. It goes up past the west of the UK, and the prevailing winds bring that heat energy 
across the UK and artificially sustain a much higher temperature. You've got a similar sort of geographical effect happening with uh, where those two locations are. You've got one that's very high, you've got one which is much lower, but it's close to an ocean, prevailing winds coming off the cold sea will, will drive colder weather. They will also change the weather locally because of the fact that you've got more rain and different other climatic conditions. So it's 